Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Owen Shanahi. Hi, man. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jan. How are you doing? Great to be here. So yeah, we've uh, connected on Twitter for quite a while now, and I know Luciano, who also works with you, and a former colleague of mine, Gura Pitt, uh, have recently started with uh, Four Theorem as well. So uh, we've got quite a few connections going on there. Um, so I guess before we start, maybe uh, can you just tell the audience about uh, Four Theorem and uh, what you do over there? Yeah, sure. So Four Theorem is, a, I suppose, a boutique consultancy in the AWS space. We've been around since 2017. We're still quite small, small and lean, I would guess, around 20 people. And while we're growing, we're trying to grow deliberately slowly, I suppose, at the moment to make sure we kind of keep everyone on the same page and make sure everybody has the opportunity to come up to speed with what we're doing. The kind of stuff we do, we, I suppose most of the projects we do are either kind of greenfield development and the other, the other side of it would be more like enterprise migrations, right, where you're taking a existing workload that might be very large, might have a long legacy to it, and moving it to AWS, usually modernizing it along the way. So not so much lift and shift, although that's sometimes what has to be done, but often it's like modernization and getting to teach people, I suppose, and work with people and show them what you can do with like serverless architecture these days. So I guess uh, with the enterprise migration projects, uh, do you see a lot of people, uh, I guess, uh, in the large enterprises also going to serverless as part of this migration and learning about uh, the cloud for the first time? Because I've dealt with a few clients who kind of fall into that category. I mean, they kind of just skip the whole containers uh, step altogether. And then they they want to just uh, go straight from on-premises to serverless because they recognize that's where you're going to get the most value. So is that something that you're also seeing as well in your area? There's definitely a bit of a shift happening there. A couple of years ago, you'd probably be a little bit more cautious about going into a customer and talking about serverless on day one. Um, we're seeing more and more. It's still not the majority, but you're seeing more and more of established big companies, even like financial services and banking, who are coming to you and talking about serverless and talking about managed services. So there has been a bit of a shift there. Um, but you still have to kind of take it on a case-by-case basis because if you're talking about a company that's on-prem, they've got a lot of existing workloads, you know, there's a lot to bite off when you're moving to AWS. And even a lift and shift for a company like that is a big undertaking, a lot, a lot of complexity involved. So you kind of have to pick your battles when you're talking about adopting new principles and if you're going to do serverless. Um, but if organizations already have to get up to speed with all the the concepts around AWS, like IAM and your accounts and continuous deployment, even or infrastructure as code. If you start loading in completely new development patterns from day one, it, you can really overload people and it's not necessarily the right thing to do for them. So sometimes it's a question of, okay, are you going to lift and shift first or are we going to say, start off with like a proof of concept, maybe take some new workload they want to build or some core piece of business logic and, and migrate it. If you do that, then you can often say, okay, well, let's let's see how we would ideally build this if we were building it from scratch. And maybe what you end up doing is somewhere in between what they have now and what that ideal kind of greenfield vision would be. And so when that when you do that, you tend to end up using a lot of serverless technologies then because uh, you can you can get started much faster. You can often reduce the code base by a significant percentage. Like sometimes you can take away like 70 or 80% of their code just by re-architecting it using things like Lambda and step functions. 
So yeah, we're seeing that quite a lot. And it's nice to see that you, know, you don't have to approach enterprises with that kind of level of trepidation anymore. You can, you can openly talk about serverless these days. Yeah, I think that's the one aspect probably a lot of people don't recognize uh, when they think about serverless and think, oh, this is easy. Uh, but then when you think about someone moving from, say, on-premises, who's never done anything besides big monoliths, now they are thinking about, uh, you know, how to build things in a more sort of microservices uh, architecture style. They have to think about uh, the problem that comes with that in terms of distributed tracing, all these other challenges and how they organize their code and their team, which they've never done in the past. And this is the first time they're adopting a new architectural paradigm as well as the new compute platform and the you know, new to cloud. So it's that cumulative effect of all the things that you have to take on in one go. That's where I think uh, things get a bit scary, which uh, for people like you and me, who's been in the cloud for a long time, you know, you're doing that incremental learning. Uh, but for some of our clients, uh, this becomes a, like a big bang, uh, which can be quite scary. Yeah, we kind of have a responsibility there, you know, even though we're serverless evangelists, I suppose you can't just, you, you, you can't be all or nothing on that approach. You have to understand where people are coming from and you can really do a lot of harm if you go in there pushing a huge technology jump on customers. You have to figure out, okay, maybe we want to get there eventually, but you get, have to get to know the people and where they're coming from and what they want to do and bring them along a journey in some way. And you have to do that incrementally. You have to work with them and you, you meet, meet them halfway, right? So some of the things you might migrate more in a way that matches their existing patterns. So often that could be just like, rather than trying to re-architect everything in a serverless way, taking some pieces of the workload, containerizing them, using infrastructure as code, continuous deployment, and then for maybe more data transformation or orchestration, start introducing things like step functions, Lambda, all these lovely event services like Kinesis and SQS. Um, that, help, that helps a lot, I think, if you can kind of meet people halfway like that, because they can start to see the benefits without having to be completely overstimulated by you know loading them with a, 100 new services with all the various concepts and nuances you need to understand. Like it's, there's, we, we have to recognize as well that there's, there's a huge amount of knowledge and it, you can't achieve the burning monk level proficiency with AWS in a in a short period of time. Like you say, it's incremental, you know. So you have to allow people to learn incrementally too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I've had a few projects where I ended up just uh, telling the client to keep using relational databases because I didn't want them to learn DynamDB as well as uh, everything else that I was teaching them already. And things like VPCs and things like that, which, uh, you know, they don't really need, but you know, rather than trying to educate them as well as the InfoSec and everybody else, uh, let's just, uh, you know, tackle one problem at a time, you know, win one battle and then we can think about the next one. Yeah, for real. We've had customers where, you know, they've had an existing platform like, like an IoT system and they build their system with IoT Core and end up as a result naturally using Lambda and DynamoDB as part of that. And then the customer might say, well, we've also got this uh, Django application with Postgres. Uh, we'd like to convert this into uh, API Gateway and DynamoDB Lambda-based stack instead, because then we're using a consistent set of technologies. But we've also found ourselves pushing back on requests like that and saying, well, look, if you've got this REST API built in Django and it's working and you're not spending a lot of time maintaining it, then you could just leave it as it is. If you don't have a really compelling reason to migrate that now, Maybe you're best spending your time and investment on other things today, because like you say, once you start going down the 
DynamoDB route, you're kind of opening a can of worms. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about DynamoDB and uh, where where it's headed and what it means for the kind of serverless direction. But it can, start, it, it can open up a can of worms and lead you into all sorts of decisions then around single table design versus multiple tables and all the uh, layers you might have to build on top of that in order to map your front end down to your underlying data store. So one of the uh, examples that uh, we talked about uh, before the show was really interesting. It was a serverless HPC use case. Uh, so maybe we can pivot and talk about that because I think that's a really interesting use case and there's quite a few different talking points we can dive into there as well. Um, so this was something that uh, you did uh, a while back. Maybe you can uh, do the introduction and uh, tell us about the project. Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about this case study recently because it's re it's not your classic serverless project with, you know, like front-end APIs and AppSync API gateway. Instead, this is like high-performance computing at scale. So we started working with the client who's a, one of the leading reinsurance companies globally. They're called Renaissance Re. And this is a, a company that manages a lot of insurance risk. So they insure insurers. That's their, that's their function as a reinsurance company. So they would write like $8 billion in premium in a, a given year, for example. And they also have to manage a lot of capital. They have to have a lot of capital on in place in order to be able to um, underwrite that risk. So the goal for that company is basically to match, manage the risk and then manage the money and the capital they have on hand and try and optimize for both of those things. And as a company, they're kind of known for being the best in terms of technology use, using technology to analyze the risk and understanding the portfolio of risks better than anyone else. And they have this process, which we started working with them on called a risk rollup, which is essentially like a high performance computing problem where they have to perform lots of statistical modeling jobs in order to understand the risk position of their portfolio of all the insurance deals. And this is like a complex set of jobs. Like it's a graph, if you can imagine like a tree structure of jobs that have to be run in some compute environment. In terms of the technology, it's like largely Python based. So you can theoretically run it anywhere. But like when you talk about HPC, there's a lot of kind of long running HPC technologies out there like MPI. On AWS, you even have things like um, Parallel Cluster and you also have things like AWS Batch. And the, I suppose the job for us, when we were in a position where like they were running on-prem, their workload was taking quite a long time to run, but their business was growing. So they knew they had to move to the cloud in order to get the scale they needed to be able to run workloads into the future. So they really wanted to like increase the scale by like an order of magnitude. We're talking about moving from 10 hours to run a workload down to one hour or less, or like data volume increases over the next couple of years of like 15x. So they're really talking about massive scale that their on-prem servers wouldn't really handle. So what what we started working with them with the goal of reducing that roll-up time to one hour. And the first POC we did was actually using AWS Batch because AWS Batch is kind of, at least in terms of its labeling, it's designed for this kind of workload. You can give it a load of jobs, you give it a container, and it'll run EC2 instances and run that workload for you. And it has a scheduler as well that will feed the cluster with all of the job parameters and run all the jobs until they're complete. So with that, we were actually able to do the process in an hour, but we noticed with batch, there's still a lot of waste and inefficiency because the scheduler has quite a lot of overhead and the jobs it allows you to run are not very granular. 
So you end up actually wasting a lot of time. We found that we were wasting like 50% of the cluster while you were running a workload end to end. So we started looking at alternatives on that. And when we had done the batch POC, we had used like Lambda and step functions for the orchestration part of the workload. Uh, we started to move into more like serverless technologies as we evolved. We were kind of in a privileged position, I suppose, as a consultant working with the customer because Renaissance Re had already kind of recognized that their reinsurance company, they don't want to be maintaining lots of infrastructure. So they were already asking us, can you use managed services and avoid us having to like maintain a load of infrastructure? We're trying to move away from that. So we started uh, like experimenting with running this HPC workload in Lambda and in Fargate and figuring out what that would look like. And early on, we had pretty good success with all that, actually. Um, the main issue, I guess, is that we were able to run this workload on Fargate and Lambda. But um, the main, main concern is that AWS doesn't have anything that will really allow you to schedule the kind of workload of this scale in a serverless way. So if you imagine you've got a big tree of jobs you want to run, a lot of them are very different sizes. So some of them might take a minute to run and some of them might take an hour. So if you want to parallelize that on you know, stateless serverless compute, what we do is we split the jobs into like chunks so that you can run them in a much smaller execution time. So then we basically fan out the job into a from a, a graph of 1,000 nodes or 5,000 nodes into one that has like a million and a half nodes. So then you end up with like a million and a half things to run. And then you can choose wherever you run them. So we split the whole workload into like a planning phase where you create a plan of all the jobs you want to run. And then you run the workload in your compute infrastructure. And in order to do that, you know, there are all of the schedulers that are out there for running HPC workloads are really designed to work with stateful traditional compute, like large instances typically with large amounts of memory and a shared storage, maybe with inter-process communication as well. But we felt that there was definitely a, pl a place to be able to do this in a serverless way where you could just respond to events that were happening on this serverless cluster and, re and process them using serverless infrastructure. So we essentially built a, a custom scheduler using things like Step Functions, Lambda, Kinesis, and Redis, actually Elasticash Redis for storing the, the state of all of your jobs. And that scheduler, it works pretty well. It allows you to, as each job runs, you have a Lambda function. That's job is to, as quickly as possible, figure out, is there another job I can run so that you feed that cluster as quickly as possible? And then make sure that the cluster is running jobs 100% of the time. And it works, and it works really well. I guess the downside to that is that we ended up creating this kind of custom scheduler. And that's not something that we'd really like to have to do. We'd much rather that there was something off the shelf we could buy either an AWS service or a third-party service that would allow you to take you know, a graph of 2 million jobs and let it run on Lambda or on whatever container infrastructure. This is actually very similar to something that uh, one of my clients actually working on this uh, notion of having to run some kind of uh, data processing job and that has got dependencies on other calculations that they need to be triggered and need to make those on-the-spot decisions in terms of, uh, okay, yeah, I don't have any data for this you know, value that I need to calculate, so I need to go and trigger some other job to run that as well. Uh, and we've also approached this uh, using step functions, uh, but I think it sounds like uh, you guys are using Fargate or something else to do the actual data quantity 
punching and then using Lambda and step functions as the orchestration layer. Did I get that right? Yeah. I mean, there's two layers of orchestration, I guess. The first one is the step function. And that's more like saying, okay, first we need to get our inputs parsed and create a plan. And then you have a plan, actually. So you don't have to dynamically figure out what has to run based on data you need. You kind of predict what data each job needs, that you have a completely deterministic plan at the start. And then you start feeding the SQSQ, which is actually something you have to design for because you, if, you, if you've got 250 jobs and you want to get them into an SQSQ as quickly as possible, you can't just do send message batch, right? You need to parallelize that and get them in there. Um, once the jobs are in the queue and workers start picking them up and running them, they start pulling them off the SQS queue. The step function is kind of has almost done its job. It waits for the callback when it's the whole process is finished, but the the rest of the orchestration is essentially like event driven choreography, because every job is report is reporting its success or failure on a Kinesis stream that gets picked up by a Lambda, which processes it and schedules subsequent jobs. So that's all kind of asynchronous and event driven. So the workers themselves and there's each part of the system is kind of very self-contained, like the worker itself has very complex modeling logic in it that the customer has built over many years, proprietary model that they run. But from a, our perspective, we kind of treat that as a black box. And it's a very simple wrapper that just pulls a job from SQS, reads and writes from S3, and emits its state on a Kinesis stream. So in all of these, the fact that you're using all of these separate stateless pieces it's actually pretty good from a point of view of development and troubleshooting because everything can be considered in isolation and replicated. If you, if you want to figure out why a job has failed or any individual piece has failed, you can just that, run that Lambda with one input and, and replay it or run it locally with the same input or run the container with the same input and, and, and understand how it works pretty, pretty well. Whereas if you're using something like Spark, where you know it distributes the workload for you and you it's 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 kind of hidden from you, it could be when things go wrong, it be much can be much more difficult to actually drill down into the source of the problem, right? Because you can't really isolate it down to a single stateless piece of compute. Okay, and in this case, uh, you're using Kinesis to uh, to feed the uh, decision making Lambda function. Exactly. Uh, uh, is that because uh, you want to have some kind of ordering in place, and also you want to also make one decision for one job at a time, so that you don't have uh, two different Lambda instances uh, all making decisions for the same job, and then having some kind of a conflict? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, we use Kinesis there because it gives you pretty good latency. It gives you guaranteed ordering. So for a given job, we make sure that the, job, the events write in order, arrive in order. So you don't get the, the succeeded event before the started event, for example. And um, yeah, it also allows us to control the parallelization of that decision-making Lambda, as you say, because with Kinesis, it's, it, it gives you very strict, predictable concurrency because you've got your shard count and then your parallelization factor. So we can size that very um, predictably, I guess, and, and know exactly how it's going to run. Okay. And then in this case, uh, you are sending the jobs to this uh, Fargate cluster. And it sounds like the, the job themselves can be quite spiky because you mentioned that you can have you know, start with one really big job and then that can fan out into the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of different smaller jobs. 
Um, so in terms of, uh, sort of scaling, is that something that uh, you guys are doing on demand based on the amount of CPU you have in the cluster and all of that? Or is it something that you're doing more predictably because you know that this job is going to require a big uh, cluster of resources to process? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So we do, we have this very heterogeneous in set of inputs because you got really tiny jobs and really massive jobs, like jobs that run in seconds, jobs that take an hour, jobs that produce a megabyte of data and jobs that produce gigabytes of data. So we try to evenly size them by splitting them into more or less similarly sized jobs, but you still have some variation. The clusters are completely uniform in the, the size. So every container is going to run one job at a time. This makes monitoring and troubleshooting a lot easier, actually. So we try to make sure that every job, every worker is dealing with one job at a time and it's, it's, it's in series. And they're using a fixed capacity. So it's like four gigabytes of RAM, a single CPU in a container infrastructure or a similar in Lambda, right? So you, you configure it for four gigabytes and you're using pretty much one CPU. And what we'd like to be able to do, I guess, and that you can't really do right now is based on knowledge of what the size of the job is, they trigger dynamically a Lambda function that has a different size to the other ones running with the same function configuration. That would be pretty cool for this workload because then you could run some of the you could run some of them with 512 megabytes of ram and others with 8 gigabytes right you know and then you would you would be optimizing for performance and cost there pretty effectively because we know generally how much resources an individual job runs but it's something you need to be able to do at runtime not at deployment time Okay, so could you, in that case, not just deploy the, uh, different variants of the same function, but with different memory settings, and then uh, uh, on a, a runtime, say, invoke this one instead of that one? You could, you could, but that that makes your manage, managing your concurrency, your reserve concurrency and stuff a little bit more challenging because you don't always know the shape of a given workload and how many of them are going to be big jobs and how many are small jobs. So that's pretty hard to predict in advance. So. I'd rather kind of avoid that kind of custom workaround for AWS and push the request back onto AWS and hope they make it that possible in the future. I mean, it, right now you're talking about probably premature optimization. You know, cost is an important factor here, but um, it's more important that the workload runs right and that you get scale. That's way more important for the customer. So uh, we do some cost optimization. I mean, that's why we use Fargate. Ideally, we would run everything in Lambda because the scalability characteristics of Lambda are just the best by far. One of the things we had to do with Fargate, when we started working with this, we wanted to run you know, 2,000 or 3,000 containers to run this workload. Um, that was taking like an hour and a half by default, you know, when you use the ECS service with Fargate. So we talked to the Fargate team and they gave us a lot of support and we were able to put in place like a custom scheduler with some limit increases and using the run task API. And we were able to scale in about, in about 15 minutes. But it meant we had to put in place this custom scheduler with step functions and Lambda to scale up and down when we were running the workloads. This is another piece of code we'd rather get rid of. Actually, now we are in a position where we can get rid of it because the ECS team has performed a few miracles in the meantime. And now you, the scalability characteristics of Fargate out of the box are way better than they used to be. And you can scale to thousands of containers in, in five, 10 minutes. But there is a, there is actually a, a workload uh, as well, as well as this long-running large workload that runs a couple of times a day. There's also another use case for the whole platform, which is like on-demand real-time analytics. 
And this is where you have, you can imagine like uh, somebody on the phone trying to make a deal on reinsurance and they want to be able to price that and assess the risk in real time. So we can use the same platform and the analyst at the end of the phone can can run a deal and get results pretty pretty quickly, like in the order of less than 30 seconds. And Fargate scalability characteristics aren't that suitable for that. And we don't really want to have to pre-warm because you can't predict when this is going to happen or how many people are going to be doing this at the same time. So for that, we actually route the modeling to Lambda instead of Fargate. So for these near real-time requests, we use the same scheduler, the same orchestration layer, but in terms of compute, it goes to Lambda instead of Fargate. And that means that we get way better scalability characteristics. And actually, we we can scale pretty large because, because uh, we've talked to AWS about this workload quite a lot. They've been uh, pretty accommodating, and now we can actually burst to 10,000 concurrent Lambdas, and we, and we can scale to 10,000 concurrent Fargate containers as well. So that gives you a lot of power in terms of being able to have lots of people in the organization running concurrent workloads and analytics in a really short space of time. Yeah, that's one of the things that I guess uh, AWS doesn't really quite publicize, the fact that uh, even some of the hard limits are negotiable if you've got a really good use case uh, that can demonstrate to AWS. And I remember we, uh, when I was at the, at the zone, we had similar conversations about uh, lifting the 3,000 concurrency burst limit on Lambda mm-hmm. because some of our workloads are also very bursty. I guess the way you fell down a bit for us was the fact that uh, you know, our limits just need to be keep pushing up because we don't know where the limit where, you know, where the limit is. Like uh, you know, today maybe ten thousand, tomorrow maybe twenty thousand, depending on how many you know concurrent users we're gonna get. Uh, so I think for that reason, we still ended up just running a bunch of containers. We pre-scaled them because uh, for the zone is you no know, sports streaming, so we know when the match kicks off. We know when people is gonna come in, so it's a bit easier to you know pre-scale based on a schedule rather than something that is a required on demand, uh, as is in your case. Um, so in this case. Um, I guess uh, with uh, uh, with some of those really bursty workloads, uh, I guess uh, having every container doing one task at a time, it makes debugging a lot easier. But if you want to make better use of the containers you already have, I guess you could push to a model where you can process multiple requests uh, with one container simultaneously so that you don't need to have as many containers in a burst as uh, you would do otherwise, right? You can. Yeah, for sure. It's It's all part of that simplicity, performance, optimization, trade-off, really. And I guess we're pretty stubborn when it comes to resisting going down paths like that because every little decision you take to do something like that and say, okay, we can optimize this and you know, we've got this small amount of CPU and memory over here, let's use that, right? I mean, you could, all of a sudden you end up with a like multi-concurrent execution environment in one, in one container. Uh, when the container fails, you have to figure out which job succeeded and which job uh, was still running and respond to that. And it, everything just becomes that small bit more complex. And if you keep making decisions like that, then these things multiply. right? And then all of a sudden you've got an infrastructure that's harder to reason about and harder to troubleshoot. And already, like with this custom scheduler, you know, as a piece of engineering, the fact that we built this serverless scheduler, you know, we're, we're kind of proud of it and we're happy it works. But at the same time, we realize that when you write a piece of code together like this for a customer, together with a customer, 
you, you kind of you've taken on a technical debt because you now you've got your own custom scheduler and we'd we'd rather avoid that. We're looking for opportunities to simplify all the time, not just tinker with code the whole day, you know, because ultimately they're looking for, you know, fast time to insight on their portfolio. They're not looking for uh, delivery of millions of lines of code. Yeah, totally understand. And I think that the, the aspect of uh, having one request at a time that you get with Lambda is uh, probably uh, underappreciated. I spent quite a bit of time with uh, you know, Erlang and a really a big fan of the Actor model. And one of the things you get that with the Actor model is the fact that you process one message at a time. So you never have to think about, uh, like you said, if the actor failed, uh, you know, figure out which jobs will fail, which ones, which ones are being processed uh, concurrently. Uh, I think that aspect of the whole Lambda runtime uh, is quite alien to people when they first sort of come into Lambda, but it's something that really helps in terms of understanding and debugging problems. Yeah, I agree. I also spend a bit of time, luckily, with Erlang and Elixir and really love that model. And I was trying to kind of replicate parts of it, I guess, in, in software architecture. It'll be interesting to see with Lambda where it's going to go, because I guess... AWS being kind of customer driven, I think it's kind of often customer led, right? And that often gets pulled in directions where, you know, customers may want to run multiple things concurrently in Lambda and have all these niche workloads and, you know, very influential customers that want to do certain things and will all feel the effect of that, right? As Lambda grows and the number of features grow, it's always a little bit of a, I suppose, source of frustration when, you know, you want well, Lambda's beauty, beauty is in its simplicity, right? And as they add more and more features, it becomes very powerful and flexible for people. But for us as developers evangelizing the serverless model because of its simplicity, you don't want that to be taken away, right? You want, to, you want things to be kept as simple as possible. And sometimes, you know, we have to face the effect that a lot of these services, DynamoDB and Lambda can be very simple if you use them in a simple way, but you have to be very conscious of not overcomplicating how you use them and boiling it down to your simplest minimal need. The number of knobs and buttons you can twiddle is growing. I do my workshop and uh, I normally start with introduction to sort of Lambda uh, section that started off with maybe like 10, 15 minutes. And nowadays it's probably closer to an hour just for the introduction of you know, Lambda 101 because of all the different, uh, like you said, configurations you have. Uh, but I think that this is a Zen of Lambda where I'm still basically using the same features that I was maybe four years ago uh, because all the other additional features that they introduce are great for specific use cases, which doesn't impact me, say, 90% of the time. So I don't even think about them. I just do the same thing that I've been doing, which works uh, and simple. And it's all the sort of zipping your content instead of uh, using container images, uh, you know, shipping stuff without custom runtimes, that any of that stuff, just using the, the vanilla box and the yeah. Lambda that you had four years ago. Uh, but it's great that you know, there's all these uh, additional things you've got now, provision concurrency, all of that for specific use cases. And I think sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's almost hard to, um, to tell people that you don't have to do all these fancy stuff. If they don't impact you, just do the box standard, you know, boring yeah. setup that, uh, that just works. I agree. I agree. I mean, having the ability to run containers with 10 gigs of RAM was a big help for us, particularly in workloads like that. Um, other things like provision concurrency, I really try to steer away from because it's not really true to the original simple promise of Lambda. Um, so it's really, like you say, only if you really, really have to. But I, I really think that workloads like this, you know, batch processing workloads, Lambda is really well suited to them. It's not the original intention and not the original set of use cases that came with Lambda. 
But the fact that you can take like a complex, long running, massive workload and divide it into these small pieces and then run them in individual stateless functions, it makes, once you, once you do this in a, as simple as possible way in terms of orchestration, it makes it quite simple as a developer to work with, right? Because if something goes wrong, you don't have to worry about it taking an hour to go wrong anymore. It's a, it's a matter of minutes before it fails. And this is like fail fast, small individual pieces. It's a model that really works well for HPC. So I think we're going to see a lot more of it. And, you know, we can already see that this has kind of been addressed because they've announced like a bulk pricing discounts now, which kind of help with this kind of workloads that aren't like API based. So I think it, it does, there's a huge future in using Lambda for like scientific computing and financial modeling. Yeah, I think uh, there's still a few hurdles that need to get over. Uh, I don't love the fact that you have to use containers sometimes uh, to get over the fact that uh, you know, you're also are often using uh, packages that are too big to fit into the, the the deployment size limit and things like that. Which kind of you know once you have once you have to do that, there's a whole bunch of other things you have to think about in terms of decisions you have to make. Uh, you know where do you put the container images and you know, all the sort of uh, security and stuff around the, the container image itself. There's just so much more additional workload you have to take on once you have to cross that threshold. And uh, I think that's something that they really need to address to make this kind of uh, uh, HPC workload uh, more accessible uh, on Lambda. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's coming. It's something that uh, a lot of people have asked for. I remember talking to uh, Denise Bauer from uh, Cicero, uh, which is yes. the... The, uh, the sort of Australian government agency that uh, did a lot of the gene sequencing on the COVID uh, back in the early days of the pandemic. And she talks about the same problem back then, just, you know, how difficult it is to, you know, to to, fight, to, to get the, uh, the packages into the Lambda functions. Uh, and the, the fact that the, the containers is there is great, but it's just so much more work compared to what you would do normally. Just zip everything up, upload it, that's it, done. <laughs> yeah, it seems arbitrary now that it's 250 megs for a zip package while well, you could do 10 gigs with a little bit yeah i remember listening to that episode of denise power and it was really awesome actually because it it resonated a lot with us because we were also involved in this project at the time um so it's great and you can see more and more of it people trying to do that kind of uh, either scientific modeling or financial modeling at scale and trying to move away from instances and i i think it's great i, th I think there's, there's a big future in it and aws are probably going to I don't know whether it's going to be with step functions or batch or some other scheduling kind of infrastructure, but make that whole orchestration piece um, a little bit easier because it is, it's it's non-trivial. Even trying to keep it as simple as we did, just like writing your own scheduler and accounting for all the failure modes, it's it's not it's no easy feat. And it would be nice to have AWS take on some managed services to support that. One of the one of the challenges with building a solution like this for a customer is that. You know, the whole model around distributed uh, logging, distributed tracing, and understanding how to debug and troubleshoot a system that's event-driven and completely asynchronous, that's um, that's something that you really need to account for as well because it's, um, it's, it's a mindset shift and um, you need the right tooling in place, right, and the right metrics and, you know, whatever you're using, whether it's CloudWatch logs or some third party for tracing or logging, uh, you need to have something to ensure that okay, it becomes people's part of people's suppose, daily uh, skill set that they're able to go in and troubleshoot and kind of jump across the system and understand how it all fits together. Which you know, it's still it's still something that's a challenge for people when they're adopting this kind of architecture for the first time. 
Yeah, agreed. And um, I guess uh, uh, Owen, this is the uh, this is all the questions I had in mind. Is there something else that that you like to mention before we go? I know from the fact that group has joined you guys recently that uh, you, you know you guys are maybe still looking for talent. You, you've been doing this uh, YouTube series with uh, Luciano as well. Uh, anything yeah. else that uh, you, know, you guys are working on new initiatives and things like that? Yeah, in terms of new initiatives at Fourth Theorem, we're doing a lot more training activity now. So for c- companies like enterprise companies, uh, but other companies as well, trying to understand all of these challenges when you're moving to new AWS patterns, not just serverless, but all the kind of foundational elements of AWS as well. Yeah, myself and Luciano have a podcast called AWS Bytes, which is, I guess, tries to be as short as possible episode every Friday for people to just give them a flavor of one aspect of working on AWS. So you could check that out awsbytes.com and for the rest yeah you can follow me on twitter it's e-o-i-n-s-o-n-s and uh yeah feel free to reach out and we are indeed hiring so always interested different skill levels different backgrounds uh interested in this kind of tech okay great i'll put those uh, in the show notes so that anyone who's interested can uh, go and uh, find out about the four theorem and uh, as well as uh, check out the AWS bytes uh, podcast again owen thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me today it's been a pleasure, Jan. Thanks a lot. Hopefully, i see you in person at some point soon. I really hope so. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.